Hey, my name is Andrew Robinson. I'm an assistant producer on the Political Climate Podcast, and this episode is brought to you with support from Lyft. Lyft is continuing its leadership in creating a cleaner, healthier, and more equitable future with a bold commitment to reach 100% electric vehicles used on the Lyft platform by 2030. The shift to EVs will create opportunities for drivers to lower their costs and keep more of their earnings. Transportation currently accounts for the largest portion of greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S., and Lyft is committed to leading the way to decarbonize its platform through vehicle electrification. Learn more at liftimpact.com electric. We have identified the 40 highest impact climate races this cycle nationwide across the 10 battleground states. These are at the state legislature level, so they have a higher climate ROI. And they do because the Biden campaign is going to cost $3 billion. It's probably going to be a 6 to $8 billion presidential race. Your average state legislature race in Arizona is $50,000. So that's the ROI element to this. While it's a polarizing issue, research shows the majority of Americans do want the government to act more aggressively to combat climate change. So how do you elect political candidates who will take up that task and make the environment a priority? In this episode, we speak to two groups attempting to do just that, putting climate change at the center of races up and down the ballot. Welcome to Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I'm your host, Julia Piper, a contributing editor at Green Tech Media and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. The presidential race is sucking up a lot of oxygen in the media landscape these days. I'm recording this shortly before the vice presidential debate between Senator Kamala Harris and current Vice President Mike Pence, and surely that event will dominate headlines tomorrow. But what about the other races that are currently underway? Campaigns not only for the House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate, but also for state legislatures. These bodies have the ability to craft and pass significant climate and energy bills. Take, for example, the state of Virginia, which passed a 100% clean energy law earlier this year, shortly after Democrats won majorities in both state houses. So what does it take to elect candidates who will act on climate? Youth activist groups like the Sunrise Movement and advocacy organizations like the League of Conservation Voters have made climate change and other environmental issues a top topic in this election cycle. But calling for climate action and tracking politicians' records isn't all there is to it. And voting for one party over another isn't necessarily the same as voting for someone who cares about the issue. But what if there were more of those people? Some candidates simply don't know much about climate change and how it relates to their communities. And that's where our first guest, Caroline Spears, comes in. In 2018, she created the Climate Cabinet Action Fund as a volunteer-based organization to help candidates with climate-related talking points and policy solutions. Since then, the effort has formalized, and today, Climate Cabinet Action Fund serves as a tech-enabled resource designed to help state-level candidates run, win, and legislate on climate change. You'll hear from Caroline and the broader strategy behind her effort in just a moment, And after that, you'll hear from Karen Strickler, founder and president of Vote Climate U.S. PAC, which is tracking key climate races in the House and Senate. I'm also joined this episode by my co-hosts, Brandon Hurlbutt and Shane Skelton. 
Brandon is a partner at Boundary Stone Partners, our Democrat on the show, and former chief of staff at the Department of Energy under Secretary Stephen Chu. And Shane is a Republican, a partner at consulting firm S2C Pacific, and former energy advisor to House Speaker Paul Ryan. Finally, before we move on, I want to highlight that we just launched an effort to raise money for the American Red Cross while growing our podcast subscriber base. From now until November 3rd, the podcast will donate $1 for every new subscriber, and I will personally match that so that we donate $2 to the American Red Cross for every new subscription to the show. Now, if you're listening to this, you may already be a subscriber, and if that is the case, thank you. We are so glad that you are here. And we would love it if you would share this message with a friend or colleague so that we can bring the podcast to a new audience while giving back. To participate, simply have a new subscriber send a screenshot of their subscription on whichever podcasting platform they like the best to politicalclimatepodcast at gmail.com or send us a message via Twitter or Instagram at poly underscore climate. That's P-O-L-I underscore climate. And that's it. Again, for every new subscription, we will donate $2 to the American Red Cross, which is responding to climate-related disasters every day, from wildfires in the West to flooding in the East and more. We really appreciate your participation. And now, let's get into this episode. On the podcast today, we have Caroline Spears. She's the founder of Climate Cabinet, which has researched and identified the top 40 highest climate impact state legislature races in this election cycle. Before Climate Cabinet, Caroline worked in solar project finance, analyzing six gigawatts of solar in eight markets that represent roughly $7.2 billion in solar investment. Caroline graduated with her bachelor's and master's in atmosphere and energy engineering from Stanford University. Caroline, thank you for coming on the show. We had the opportunity to meet once uh, months back before uh, COVID really hit us here. It's nice to connect again. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's nice to be here. So to kick us off, explain in your words what Climate Cabinet is. Why did you launch it? Leaving you know your career in the uh, clean energy development space, why did you think this was important? Tell us what you do. Yes. So here's why I started Climate Cabinet and Climate Cabinet Action Fund. It was early 2018. I'm from Houston, Texas. So first of all, some backstory. I'm from an oil and gas family in in Houston, Texas, and got a degree in atmosphere and energy engineering, which is climate change, working in solar project finance. Uh, And and through that was kind of getting an appreciation for how important state legislatures are when it comes to our ability to actually deploy clean energy and build clean energy. And the person running for the Texas state legislature from my home district reached out and said, hey, I need some help running a climate platform. And I was like, sure, I'd love to help you, but doesn't someone do this already? And uh, the answer was no. So we wrote for a climate platform. And then this was the like big, like break the supermajority 2018 seat. Like this was like a, the big deal seat of, of the 2018 cycle for the Texas state legislature. So it was like, well, if you don't have this information, nobody else does. So started writing, first got groups of friends together. We sat down, we wrote 100 district specific climate briefs for every person running for the Texas state legislature, flew to the Democratic Convention in Fort Worth and handed them out. And that's how this all got started. Um, So we did that. And I was like, okay, like, I guess Texas might be, you know, in a different space than some of the rest of the country on climate. Started realizing this is a problem um, in more areas than just Texas and expanded. So uh, this year we wrote um, 900 district specific briefs for every 
uh, state legislator race in Colorado, North Carolina, and Texas, and every Democratic uh, candidate for the United States House of Representatives. Uh, so we distributed those. We've been working with campaigns this cycle to help them run, win, and legislate on climate change. So Caroline, can I interject real quick? So does that mean it's a it's a Democratic organization? It's not a, a nonpartisan climate change organization? Would that be a fair characteristic or characterization? I would say that uh, Climate Cabinet Action Fund is a 527 organization. So we choose who we reach out to. We have reached out to a few Republicans. Right now, our standard for who are we going to really try to reach out to is who is likely to take serious action on climate change when they're in office. And unfortunately, uh, right now, that means that we're in a space where we're primarily reaching out to Democrats. Brandon, what do you make of this? I know you uh, first introduced me to Caroline a while ago. You are obviously the Democrat in our show. What is your assessment on the need for this kind of service? For our listeners, you know, you know that I am uh, really active in democratic politics and climate change advocacy, and I've met so many wonderful young people uh, in that process. And I have to say that Caroline is one of the most talented, ambitious um, persons I've met in in climate. I mean, she's really uh, she gives me so much hope. For the future, and I feel really grateful to know her um, and to work with her. I think the Republicans are, are usually better at doing these type of things. There's such a need for it. Democrats tend to focus on the top of the ticket, and we don't always think about down ballot and just sort of blocking and tackling basic organizing for equipping state legislative candidates with what they need to win. Um, I'm envious that the Republicans have done a better job of that. I think that's why they've been more successful electorally, especially in some of these local elections. And so what Caroline is doing is vital. We should be doing more of it. And I'd be curious to know from Caroline, what more could we do? What kind of help do you need? What could our listeners do to support you? Yeah, I think right now, I, I would absolutely agree with that in that uh, we're not doing enough to help help down ballot, particularly state legislatures, um, be as effective as they could be on climate change. And that and that's on us. So us being Democrats, you mean the Democratic Party? Us being, I guess, society at large, we're currently in a space where climate change is so polarized that it's hard to start breaking that out from kind of uh, ambitious action on climate change, appropriate action on climate change. It's hard to see that coming from the Republican Party right now. Um, so it tends to get commingled, especially in this election cycle. Or what, 28 days until the election? So here we are. Um, so we've done candidate education. The next piece that we're adding is the Climate Cabinet 40. So, right, we're writing all these district-specific briefs. It gets super tiring to write these all by hand. So we created a database. And, and candidates are kind of like, I want economic information. I want health care, jobs, polling, how did my, how did the incumbent vote? How did my opponent vote on this issue? So we kind of created a database of district specific climate impacts and solutions and voting records and political vulnerability for every state legislature district in the 10 battleground states. And so currently where we're going with that, um, to answer your question, Brandon, is um, we have identified the 40 highest impact climate races this cycle nationwide across the 10 battleground states. These are at the state legislature level. So they have a higher climate ROI. And they do because the Biden campaign is going to cost $3 billion. It's probably going to be a 6 to $8 billion presidential race. Your average state legislature race in Arizona is $50,000. So that's the ROI element to this. Um, and, and so folks are 
interested in figuring out how they can have an impact before the selection cycle, um, you can go to our website and it has specific folks you can volunteer for, donate for, et cetera. And we do have one Republican on there, Shane. So, Hey, that's what I like to hear. A follow-up on that, uh, Caroline, is I know you don't have obviously too much data that you can sort through now because you said you started in, in 2018, but uh, kind of a compound question. What's the uptake been like? Have you seen this material be productive and used? Because one of the you know things I've experienced in working on campaigns is that policy is almost the smallest arm. They sort of get out the vote operations important, door knocking operations important. Policy is almost an afterthought. That's been frustrating for me, but I'm curious if you've experienced the same thing. Definitely. I think one thing that we've really been focused on is this all started because a candidate had a need, right? And so what we have done since that time is continually ask campaigns, what do you need from us? What would be helpful? What would be useful? And so because of that, we um, it's been messaging support. It's been get out the vote support. What One thing that we're seeing really clearly and strongly come through in all of the polling that's been done this year, a Pew Research Poll was released yesterday or the day before, um, early in the year, Center for American Progress and League of Conservation Voters released research that climate change and clean energy are one of those things that really moves persuadable voters and energizes young voters to get out the vote. Um, and so that's been a really useful cocktail that's enabled uptake for folks. And we're seeing this from the high level. Candidates, I've had candidates say, you know, oh, we did a issue polling to see what issues were resonating with voters. And I was super surprised climate change came back second. You know, they were like, what? But you know, then they're like, well, where do we go to get information? It's really challenging. So we've had, um, I would say, out of the, you know, we've distributed 900 papers as a as a unknown organization for this past cycle. Um, we've had individual conversations with over 100 campaigns to get their feedback, what would be helpful for them to help make this this useful for their campaign. And then we'll do kind of turnaround. So our uptake's been um, pretty good, given the insanity of the 2020 uh cycle, but also a year. I have a question for both Shane and Caroline. Uh, maybe you can start with Shane. Can you explain the sort of infrastructure that's available uh, to Republicans um, who want to run for office? Uh, like, let's say you are a Republican, you want to run for local office, eventually you get elected. What are the resources to, uh, that are available to you? Then you may want to run for federal office. Then maybe you want to become like a judge uh, or something like that. Can you explain how that ecosystem works, Shane? It'd be fun to sort of contrast that, Caroline, with what you see and what are the gaps on the Democratic side and how are you filling that? Yeah, so Republicans, I think, figured out long before Democrats that the only way to, to really, you know, not control, but have more control over who gets seated in Congress is to control the state legislatures who draw the lines. And so you're, you're, I don't know the proper word, but each decade that election is going to have an incredibly important impact. And so 2010 is a good example of where Republicans took the majority in Congress. But what was less talked about is that Republicans took the majority in several state legislatures, which allowed them to then, I think decennial is the word, uh, redraw the congressional lines that would last for that decade in each particular state. And interestingly, you know, a lot of members came to Congress in 2012 claiming they had a mandate and they were under a mistaken belief that they won their races rather than that the lines were drawn to, to hand them to them. So that was it created a headache with the Freedom Caucus and, and, and all those other things that we all saw. But um, the American Legislative Exchange Council is a really good example of a body that recruits and, and fosters young conservative candidates, provides them not just with the ability to fundraise, but the resources they need to campaign. 
the Coke network and, and people, you know, they hear Coke network and what they think is super PACs that dole out, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, but it's far more sophisticated than that. And it's far more, um, you know, election outcome oriented than just doling out money. Some super PACs just write checks. The, the Republicans have done a really good job, and especially the Coke network, of creating different groups, whether it's, you know, Americans for Prosperity, whether it's the American Legislative Exchange Council, whether it's Freedom Works, but a bunch of different, you know, a constellation of enterprises that identify candidates who align with their ideology uh, at every level of government, um, you know, from, from Senate to House, all the way on down to the state legislature. And they, they nurture those candidates and they provide them resources and introduce them to people, provide them, you know, model uh, something similar to what Carolyn's talking about is sort of model legislation, model um, uh, platforms that you can run on. And, and I, I, you know, I don't want to blab too much, but there is a, a very strong support network. If you're a young conservative who wants to get involved in politics and you align with the ideology of some of the, the larger conservative organizations, there are a lot of resources at your disposal to help you run a good campaign. Uh, an informed campaign, an issue-based campaign, and then once you get elected to office, there's there's model legislation and and outlines of, of different policy prescriptions that you can use to to sort of make your mark. We should just note that there's a little Shane kiddo in the background that our listeners may be hearing who has a lot of thoughts on this also. <laughs> so in case you guys are hearing that, which we think is totally fine, everyone's working from home, but just wanted to shout that out for listeners. Yeah, the Koch brothers probably already have him in the system. And like he's being groomed, you know, for like president someday, whereas on our side, you know, Caroline's struggling to raise minimal dollars to flip state legislatures that could have a huge impact on the future of the Congress. Yeah, I mean, well, we've already started on what we call his political swoop, right? That little comb flip in the front of the hair just to make sure he's camera ready. So and he already he already doesn't know how to stop talking. So he's not going to require much training. <laughs> Love it. Caroline, uh, taking Brandon's question and putting it to you, what do you see on your side? Is is the support as, as weak as, as you know, Brandon was just implying there? Yes, unfortunately. This is why I say that, right? Because the way a lot of folks decide to start um, figuring out where to fund is they do a landscape analysis. And they say, what are all the groups that are involved? And what do those groups do? And then they say, well, okay, here are the gaps. We've taken the opposite approach where we started by talking to hundreds of candidates and saying, what do you need from us? What's going on? So that bottom-up approach. So I'm going to take this from, from that approach, um, which means that I'm, I've come to some different conclusions, I think, than, than a traditional landscape approach, which is um, the candidates that I've talked to have, uh, it's really hard to run for run for a lot to run for office. A lot of state candidates, particularly at the state legislature level, particularly in some of these districts that aren't kind of, quote, seen as winnable from the get-go, they sign their name at the Secretary of State's office in Austin or in um, Atlanta or wherever they're running. And it's like, okay, have fun. Go figure out your own legal. Go set up a website. Um Oh, issues? Yeah, you should be really good on these 15 issues. And uh, there's this sense of like, we don't want to write this for you. So we're going to let you do it. And from the candidate's perspective, they're like, maybe I can hire one staff person. And so there, there's just not an ability to sign your name at the Texas Secretary of State's office, for example, and immediately become knowledgeable on 15 issue areas. Um, and on the Democratic side, we expect that to happen um, in many places. Uh, there's a lot of groups who are solving that problem, run for something, contest every race, tech for campaigns, um, emerge. Uh, we got Arena Academy. 
but there are five places and it's very challenging for a candidate, especially a first time candidate to know where do I go to get resources that are valuable. Um, and so I think the challenge for down ballot races um, and the challenge for building a kind of progressive or democratic infrastructure is um, to start coordinating that and centralizing it so that it's not six groups all competing for resources from the same group of donors um, and making sure that instead we're, we're coordinating well. So there's a, there's just not a, a coordinated kind of effort effort and there it's grown. It, there's definitely a lot of groups. Of so you're saying that Democrats are disorganized. Yeah. Dem, I'm saying Dems <laughs> in disarray. Um, but there are a lot of fabulous organizations that are doing a lot of work on this and they deserve to be like recognized for that. Um, run for something is particularly doing a particularly great job. Um, but it's, it's very uh, decentralized and it doesn't create this awesome pipeline where it's like, great. Okay. We've got you to run. Now we're going to hand you off to the, the experts on these issues. Now we're going to hand you off to this legislation or is kind of what, what the menu of policy options look like. Um, I almost wonder, though, I'm curious to uh, Brandon and Caroline, uh, is that not in some ways a moral high ground for the Democrats? Because the Republicans get slammed all the time for having such an institution, a powerful institution that cultivates candidates, gives them a policy platform that leads to some of the entrenched views and even some disconnect from the voters, I think, when these special interests start getting involved. And then, for instance, we see maybe inaction on climate change from legislators that does not align with where the actual public stands. So is there not a counter argument to be made that, OK, maybe you do want to educate people some more, but not having such a, co a comprehensive election infrastructure is actually puts a feather in your cap. Maybe it doesn't play out the way you want politically, but I'm just curious where that plays out on the moral grounds. The moral conversation is really interesting when you win and you have the power to pass legislation. And if you can't win and pass legislation to achieve your policy goals, then um, the moral high ground is is uh, not helpful. It, <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad someone said it because I would have if she did. I just like we need to look. We need to pass climate legislation, and and you can lose over and over again and say, oh, we're going to have the moral high ground. We're going to keep the filibuster because we want some type of moral high ground. Whatever. If, if we're going to assign a moral high, a moral value to the filibuster, keeping the filibuster means that we don't pass climate legislation. And so I'm a little bit more concerned with climate change than I am with something that we've called the filibuster that it's been a rule for a while, but we sort of had it sometimes and we sort of like sometimes just kind of shoved it out the window. Like one of those things is morally more interesting to me. We've been backing into this, but I do want to now kind of rewind and dig into what exactly you've been working on at Climate Cabinet. You talked about the 40 races. You guys are helping craft these platforms. What are some of those key races? Uh, get specific if you can. What states? Who are we talking about? And what are the messages that are working there? Yeah, so uh, we've 10 battleground states. These are these states. I can name them. They're not going to be surprising. Arizona. Texas, Iowa, Pennsylvania, Virginia, and North Carolina. Not Virginia this year. Virginia is not up until next year for the state legislature. Florida, um, Wisconsin, Michigan. Like, no, no surprises here in the, in the 10 battleground states. Um, here's what we're hearing from candidates. And I would say this is a differentiator between kind of this centralized command and control, like you are going to pass this 
pipeline protest bill because Alec told you to. This is this is where this differs a little bit. We do sit down with candidates and say, what's interesting to you? What are you running on? You know, I'm not going to recommend that you run on something that isn't resonating in your community. Um, but we can, there's a way for us to, to, there's a way to be high impact and also um, work for your community at the same time. And it's like bringing clean energy jobs, for example, to your community is not something that's going to be um, it's going to be politically helpful and it'll help your community as well. So here's what we're hearing a lot from campaigns. Um, it's about the economy. It's about healthcare, um, And uh, what do the polls say are kind of the three biggest pieces. And so as a climate organization, you know, we're not going to think about other, we're not going to give them the IPCC report on the PM 2.5 concentrations in Mauna Loa. We're going to say, great, the economy and healthcare, let's talk about how climate change the impact that climate has on air pollution. And let's talk about um, cl- the clean energy jobs that already exist in your district. Um, so that's how, that's what we've been hearing from campaigns this cycle. It's not a, it's not a, it's not like this crazy insight. It is just like, yes, it is the economy and healthcare. And so that's what we've been focused on. So Caroline, let me, let me ask a follow-up on that because you, you did say you had one Republican on your side. So I, I do want to hat tip to that, yeah. but we talked about, finance and how important that is. And, and I tend to agree with you that um, moral high ground is, is much easier to celebrate when you're in power than it is when you're losing. But hey, you know, you're, you're on the right side of history, whatever that means. Um, so we all want to get climate legislation passed, at least everyone on this call, uh, on this um, on, on this podcast. But if, if you're running a campaign, let's just be perfectly frank, you need to raise a lot of money. And it's more true now than it's ever been. I mean, small congressional races, can cost up to eight to ten million dollars, depending on where the seat's located. Senate races, presidential races, forget about it. So money really is critically important to running a campaign, even if you're a great candidate, even if you have great resources and a great fan base, great base support. You got to have money. And so, if we're agreeing that Republicans have traditionally been a lot better at financing and grooming candidates, but we also agree that a lot of that money might be coming from oil and gas and petrochemicals where you're going to be less inclined to have, you know, sort of an education and a platform based around climate change, doesn't it then make sense for climate centric groups like yours and like many others, frankly, to identify and support Republican candidates who do want those things? Because then you're not in that it's a winner take all situation. You're sort of in a regular situation where you could have Republicans and Democrats that make up a plurality and pass a, pass a darn climate bill. I mean, I, I, I realize that's not what you're saying, but doesn't that seem to make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. Um, and here's why we haven't taken that approach. So we have this database, right? And we use it for candidate education. We use it to identify the top 40. Um, it also provides some fascinating insights into the polarization of climate change. We took 10 battleground states, 1,600 state legislators, and every single climate and environmental vote they've taken over the past two to three years, depending on the state. Um, and so we, we analyzed that's about 10 or 11,000 individual votes. We said, what can we learn from this? And are there any standout folks? You know, who, who are the standouts here? We found one Republican across 10 battleground states that had um, it, just the, the sheer polarization of the issue means that we found one Republican who is in a tough re-election campaign who is good on climate change. And so that's awesome. Like we can go all in and help support Gerald Green. And we can, there's one guy in in Congress in Pennsylvania, um, Brian Fitzpatrick. We can, you know, that's great. Um, But that's two people in 10 states. 
And it's just like the bench isn't there to, if I wanted to take that as a strategy, I agree it's a good strategy, but you need a bigger number of folks who are excited about your strategy before going in and being like two people and that's it. And they're still going to vote for Kevin McCarthy for house, um, for speaker and Kevin McCarthy's only, uh, climate bill involves 45 Q tax credits. That's like his entire climate strategy. For and carbon trees. capture. Yeah. He wants to plant and, trees. And, and a billion, that, is it a trillion trees or a billion trees? I think it's a trillion nationwide or globally. I think it's a trillion globally. But so, so that's, that's a good point of clarification. So you are looking at existing elected officials that you want to support and help push to the fore rather than recruiting individuals to run for public Currently, office. Currently, we are looking at existing um, yes, existing campaigns in the future, I think recruiting becomes important. Gotcha. Shane, how does that data make you feel when Caroline rattles off those numbers? What's in your heart? You know, we say in my household that you can't use the F word, only one of them, and it's it's feel or, or fair actually too, so too. <laughs> but I'm joking, I'm joking, I'm joking. Uh, it's a good question. It, it's frustrating, um, but it's not surprising. Uh, I... I'm not, I'm not surprised. I guess I want to be surprised. I'm not surprised. It's frustrating, but I don't, I, I've, as you know, Brandon, I've tried to campaign on these issues and the Republican base just isn't there right now, which is why I didn't intend to, to point blame at, at Caroline or anyone else. I'm frustrated that there isn't a bigger support structure for Republicans who are excited about public office. And one of the primary reasons they're excited about that is for climate change. It's no one's fault. I'm not pointing fingers outward. The finger needs to be pointed inward for sure. Republicans seem to be better on the issue. But I wish there were organizations like Caroline's that you could say, I'm really excited to represent, you know, Pennsylvania's fifth district. I'm making this up, but um, I'm excited about climate change. I'm conservative on, on tax policy. I got to go raise money. The Cokes are, are not there for me because I'm I'm running as a, as a pro-climate candidate. Where do I go? And the answer is nowhere. And, and that that's not anyone's fault uh, other than our own. So I'm not blaming anyone, but it, but it is a frustration. So it, it's frustrating, I guess, would be the answer yeah. to your question. I heard the, there's another F word for you, Shane. Frustration, hearing well, that we're a allowed lot. to use that one. <laughs> I, think, I think one of my kids said we were playing a game. It wasn't fair. I'm like, come on. Yeah, I, I can't even pretend like I don't use the other F word at home. So I had to, I had to ban that one. <laughs> well, for anyone who may not know, is maybe joining the podcast later, Shane literally ran for Congress or you launched a campaign here, I guess, was it 2018? Yeah, briefly. And then you ultimately shut it down. Just want to add that context on, on campaigning. So you have some direct insight on this. Yeah, Shane, I was wondering what you think of, uh, you know, Dan Crenshaw's come out and said climate change is real and my solution is $50 million into carbon capture and storage. Like I was wondering, you know, he's somebody who's come out, but his plan is so like if I were if I were doing what you would you suggested and saying I'm going to pick someone who's come out on this issue, I kind of would pick Dan Crenshaw, but also I wouldn't. Um, I was wondering, what do you think about that race right now. Can you just explain uh, where that race is and who Dan Crenshaw is? Yeah, Dan Crenshaw, Texas 2nd Congressional District. He represents Houston, energy capital of the world. Um, when Kevin McCarthy released his climate plan, he was he was one of the folks that, that kind of announced it with folks. And um, he has a, a plan for solving climate change that is, uh, he has gone on record saying wind and solar are kind of ridiculous and silly. And then he's like, but I have a solution to climate change and it's carbon capture and storage. Yeah. Like, first of all, I love Dan Crenshaw. I always have, but I loved him more after that really like badass campaign video that, that I'll tweet out to our support or to our, to our listeners if they're interested, cause it's just awesome. Um, Dan Crenshaw is fantastic. Uh, do I think his plan is sufficiently ambitious? Absolutely not. 
I, I do think that where Republicans are getting stuck is that, um, I mean, several places, but one of the places is you say, you know, all wind and solar. So I say all carbon capture. And the truth is it doesn't have to be a binary choice. It's either the Democrats or the Republicans. The reality of it is you can get a lot of renewable energy, a lot of zero emissions energy on the grid. You're going to need storage. You're going to need a more sophisticated distribution system. You're going to need more transmission infrastructure. And yes, in my opinion, you're going to need some nuclear facilities and you're going to need carbon capture because our country is going to continue to uh, consume a lot of electricity. And if we actually start to electrify, which is probably the fastest route to decarbonization, especially in the automotive sector or in the automobile sector, uh, transportation sector, we're going to need all those things. So I I don't think that his plan is sufficient. Absolutely not. Um, but I do think we need to stop sort of, not not you, but I mean, we need to stop thinking, okay, we'll do 50 million at carbon capture. That's good enough. Or no, it has to be all wind and solar. We have a huge country that has a lot of energy needs. And I just wish we could not have it be a choice between a Republican solution, which is planting trees and carbon capture, and a Democrat solution, which is zero carbon tomorrow, and actually build a package that could pass with 78 votes in the Senate. I'm making up that number, but you know what I mean? Yeah. An overwhelming majority. And it's frustrating, honestly, but I, but I do love Dan Crenshaw. I'm surprised that you can be a, a Republican even in Texas these days and poo-poo wind and solar. It's such a big industry there now. I mean, we've talked about this in past episodes. It's not like it's just some little fringe environmental movement in Texas. That, that was going to be my question is um, I have this big bet with Shane where I made an aggressive uh, you know, claim that Biden could win Texas. Caroline, how, what are you seeing in Texas and what are the chances I, I beat Shane again in my bet? I, I listened to the Texas episode, so I, I heard a lot about this bet. You, so you think Biden's, I don't think Biden's winning Texas. And, and I'm like, I'm being a total pundit right now. I usually like to live in data land where I'm like, we did an analysis and we analyzed 11,000 votes. But I'm going to, so I like to clearly delineate when I get into like pundit land. This is pundit land. Welcome. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> uh oh! <laughs> Start saving up, Brandon. Before the Texas House still flips, because it got the Republicans gerrymandered it so much. And this, if you want to get really wonky, there's this thing called the county line rule, which means that in the Texas House, Dallas is really overweighted compared to the Rio Grande Valley, and Dallas is where the Democrats are getting pickups and et cetera. So, so you think we will win the the Texas House yeah. State House? Oh, that's interesting. So you think they'll win the Texas State House? And I'm glad you said that Biden has no chance, not even because of my political leanings, because I had to take a second mortgage for our last Texas bet. So I, <laughs> I'm not ready to take a third. I forget what the terms were for this bet. What was it again? Straight up, Biden wins Texas or not. And what were the what was the winning? Like what was the what was on the line? Dinner. Dinner. Yeah, you got to do another okay, dinner. Another dinner. I mean, the, the dinner was fun. I, I just, you know, I had to had the, the the last part that was not very fun. <laughs> I love these bets because I just try to tag along and <laughs> play no part in it. But uh, yeah. Um, well, we have just a couple minutes left here, Caroline. Rapid fire, because I do think it's really interesting. I want you to discuss quickly why Colorado is the gold standard battleground state. I believe that was your determination, and why states like Georgia, Michigan, Iowa, Florida, Wisconsin, and Arizona are labeled as disinterested. I just want to get a little more granular data on the states here because it's super interesting. Yeah, so we did this long analysis of voting records and what's happening in every state on climate policy and what can we learn from that in terms of where we should go uh, in the future and in terms of partisanship. We did a lot of Republican, Democrat um, views. Um, we took the 10 battleground states up 
Um, nine of them are controlled um, by Republican state legislatures. Colorado isn't. And I think this is illustrates the the enormous partisanship of this issue. Um, and, and this is why we labeled a bunch of states like disinterested. And Colorado passed nine pieces of climate legislation. They're tackling, Shane, just like you were saying, they're tackling transportation, they're tackling um, transmission and grid infrastructure. Um, okay, now let's go to a place like Arizona. Arizona passed some environmental bills last year. Uh, the closest you can get to climate or clean energy in Arizona is they passed a, their budget didn't include anything about clean energy or helping clean energy or promoting it or, or anything. And they took money out of the air pollution reduction fund and put it into the water pollution reduction fund. So this is like, this is the level of play in the state legislatures right now is a pro-climate majority passing, you know, eight or nine climate bills. I don't even know how many it was um, that, that look at every single aspect that are trying to, that are, um, have elements that help economic impacts from coal mining, et cetera. And on the other hand, you have Arizona, best solar resource in the country, saying we don't even want to touch it. We're not interested. Um, and, and that's the partisanship of, of climate is, is illustrated so clearly, not just in the individual, individual votes that legislators take, but in what the majority leader of the chambers and states brings to the floor. And just the difference between Colorado and every other state's climate bills uh, in the battlegrounds was astonishing. I mean, you mentioned Virginia previously. Uh, I think you mentioned the state legislature is not up this cycle, but it was in 2018, correct? So that was when the Democrats really swept and almost immediately we had 100% clean energy legislation coming through immediately in policy terms. I think it was about a, you know, several months later. Um, But that was a clear sign of how when climate candidates took office, something moved. And we have noted we had a young conservative, Benji Backer, on the show who pointed to Republican governors who have signed off on those bills. But normally, so far, it's been largely Democrats who've passed state legislation, which then a Republican governor may have signed off on. But it just goes to show why we're talking about the states right now and why these legislatures are so important. And as Brandon said at the very beginning, Democrats tend to focus on the top of the ticket when this is really where a lot of like, you know, the work gets done. Yeah, like deciding the entire electricity mix, who gets natural disaster funding, the federal government allocates, the states decide who gets it, there are enormous racial disparities and who's getting natural disaster funding from all of these climate disasters, from the climate fires, from hurricanes, et cetera. Um, as someone who's evacuated from five hurricanes, um, like that's a big deal. Um, and, and there's, yeah, and state legislatures decide all of that, clean cars, dirty cars, et cetera. Well, we don't have time to get into it now, but I think the question of states' rights will be very much up for discussion in months to come. Things will end up ultimately in the courts around, say, California acting on clean cars or other, you know, rules that it wants to put in place. And so we'll see how uh, Democrats, Republicans land on that. Republicans largely talk about states' rights, maybe because they had, you know, a lot of uh, control in the states. I'm not sure, but we'll see if that holds up as these discussions on climate continue to become more controversial and make their way through the courts as well.
Well, just to be clear, states' rights are a core sort of bedrock Republican issue, not only when they have control. But I have a feeling, you know, should Joe Biden win in November, Democrats will quickly lose their uh, passion for states' well, rights. I, I, I and in Texas, Republicans that. have quickly lost their their interest in local control or, or anything as soon as, you know, the Texas Speaker of the House on tape said this is going to be the worst session that cities and counties in Texas have ever had as he passed bill after bill to take away cities and counties ability to govern themselves. So I, you know, state rights, rights, local control, there's definitely a lot of, um, whoever politics, a lot of like, Hey, when we have control, we love the cities, but when the cities kind of get out, we start losing our appetite for, um, uh, you know, local control, things like that. Yes. Well, we'll have to stop it there because uh, we've covered a lot uh, already. Caroline, thank you so much for speaking with us. And we'll be sure to link to your website in our show notes. Uh, thank you again. Thank you again. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank you, Caroline. If I could just make a closing comment on that, Julia. We have so many of our listeners that are influential. And uh, if you're looking to do something that has impact, uh, reach out to Caroline and, and Give her help. Um, she needs to succeed. And I can just say my experience with her, uh, it's now that you've listened, uh, you may have come to the same conclusion about how talented uh, she is and uh, the importance of what she's doing. So, um, you know, please reach out and, and help her. Uh, I think you'll have a great experience in, in supporting her. So I'd love to see uh, more people get involved. Thanks, Brandon. That's very nice. So in the first part of this episode, we spoke to Caroline Spears about state legislatures, about the races that are happening below Congress, below the presidential race, uh, and just how critical those are. Now we're going to turn to congressional races. We're going to look at some of the key races across the country where climate change is relevant, where there are climate candidates on the ballot. And to do that, we're going to speak to Karen Strickler. She's the founder and president of Vote Climate U.S. PAC. Karen, thank you so much for coming on. I am thrilled to be here, Julia. Thanks for having me. So for a bit of background for our listeners, Vote Climate U.S. PAC works to elect candidates to get off of fossil fuels, transition to clean, renewable energy, and reduce carbon pollution by putting a fee on carbon in order to slow climate change and other related weather extremes. That is according to your website. How would you put it in your words? Give us a little more color around why you started Vote Climate US PAC and, and what you're trying to do right now. The reason I started Vote Climate US PAC is because I had my own television show, a local cable TV show, for about five years. And I kept inviting people on to ask what was happening on climate change and increasingly became aware that nothing was really happening. And so I thought, well, in that case, I'm going to step in and try to make something happen on the issue. I have a background as a grassroots political organizer on the state, national, and international level. And I just decided it was time for me to stop talking about it and start doing something about it. And what does doing something about it look like? I know you guys were active in the 2018 election. Uh, what does your voter guide look like? What are you ultimately trying to get candidates and I guess ultimately voters uh, to do. Right. Well, it was first in 2018, Julia, that we premiered our, our voters guide. And that was out of frustration of starting the way a lot of super PACs do. And that is 
prioritizing candidates and trying to get them elected. And it didn't, we couldn't tell what kind of an impact we were having. And I wanted to have a broader impact and to really, really change the politics of climate change. And so we did our voters guide for the first time in 2018. 2020 is is looking very interesting and a little different. Uh, first of all, people can find us at voteclimatepack.org. That's where you'll find our National Climate Change Voters Guide. It gives every incumbent and challenger for a seat in the U.S. House and U.S. Senate what we call a climate calculation. It's a score for voters to use to vote climate. And our climate calculations range from climate hero to climate zero. They're designed to help Americans to choose political action on climate change. The thing that makes our voters guide really different is that in addition to assessing incumbents and challengers, which doesn't happen, I don't think it's ever happened before, uh, there also hasn't been a voter's guide that goes beyond votes to assess position on the issue, leadership, and putting a fee on carbon pollution. So unlike others before it, the voter's guide also focuses exclusively on climate change, no other environmental issues. And so we have we, I said we rate incumbents and challengers. Challengers are rated a little bit differently. They're rated just on position and fee on carbon. So uh, the bottom line is that if voters use our voters guide as intended to make climate change a top priority issue, we'll revolutionize the politics of climate change nationwide by electing climate action candidates across the country to enact the legislation that we need to slow climate change. I'm curious, does voting for a climate candidate mean you're basically voting Democrat? Or is there any kind of bipartisanship happening here? Well, sadly, right now, it does mean that. And we are a nonpartisan organization. So we're looking to support people who want to make the issue a priority. But right now, there is a massive partisan divide on the issue. I was hoping to get into that a little bit later, but I can tell you right now, in our 2020 analysis of results for our voter's guide, we found that Republicans in the U.S. Senate averaged 14.7 out of 100, and Democrats averaged 98.1. And in the U.S. House, Republicans averaged 12.1, and Democrats 90. So it's no surprise that there's a partisan divide on climate change. What is shocking is the extent of the partisan divide. And again, that's not something we want. That just happens to be the reality of the situation. So it demonstrates that the climate politics are overwhelmingly driven by party. But the great news is that politicians are responding to voters' calls for actions on climate change with a higher overall average for 2020 in both parties as compared to 2018. But the responses need to happen faster with stronger leadership in both parties and especially among Republicans. Now, one other thing that we found on the partisan divide is that challengers in the Republican Party show up bit smaller divide. So they averaged 17.7 in the Senate and 28.4 in the House, which means there is a shift underway in the Republican Party, but it needs to happen much, much faster than it's currently happening. You mentioned those numbers, 17.5, et cetera, these, these numbers that compare and contrast the different um, legislators and candidates. What are those being ranked on exactly? What does that number mean? Is that based on votes for climate-related issues, or what does that refer to? Yeah, okay, good question. So 
Uh, there are climate heroes and climate zeros and everything in between in our National Climate Change Voters Guide. So an incumbent who is a hero has a position that shows that they understand the importance of taking action on climate change as a top priority issue. They always vote pro-climate. They demonstrate leadership. This is a very important thing by making public statements and advocating for action on climate change as a top priority issue. They publicly support and advocate for a U.S. fee on carbon pollution without exception. So that's the hero. And by contrast, there's the zero who disagrees with scientists that climate change is even real and human-made. They vote against climate legislation every time. They show leadership in the wrong direction. They make public statements and they advocate against action on climate change. They advocate and vote against putting a fee on carbon. So those are the two ends of the spectrum. And then we have candidates in between. Let's say a a candidate scores 93.75 on our voter's guide. They, They usually just miss 100 on either leadership or putting a fee on carbon pollution. Those are two things that we measure. But I'd like to say something about leadership because it's really important. We don't have the luxury of time for incremental progress on this issue with the IPCC telling us we have about 11 years for transformational action across the board. So we need strong leadership to cut greenhouse gas emissions to zero as quickly as possible for what climate scientists are calling a climate emergency. So beyond voting right and having the right position on the issue, candidates also have to support a fee on carbon and they have to be a leader if they want to be a climate hero. We need more of them. I can give you some of the numbers for how many climate heroes and zeros we have and you'll see that we have a deficit. We need more leadership on this issue. With that said, I want to get into like the reality on the ground. What would be some of the key races where, you know, there's a climate candidate? Um, I'm sure there are plenty of races, but are there some that jump to your mind where it's maybe a tight race or there's two climate candidates or relatively competitive ones? Or what would be some of the races you'd highlight where this issue is really at the fore? Sure. That's a, another great question. And of course, the Senate is always a good place to make these very stark contrasts. So let's start with Colorado. We have Cory Gardner versus John Hickenlooper. And Gardner is the incumbent senator. Cory Gardner has an 18.75 on our climate calculation, and John Hickenlooper has a 100. That's a deficit of 81.25. That's a really important race, a really critical race for increasing our our climate voting block in the U.S. Senate. I have others. I have many others. Well, Let's take. Can um, I just pause on that one for just a moment because I think it's interesting that Cory yeah. Gardner ranks so low because a lot of people would actually put him in a climate champion category, at least among other Republicans. I think he's advocated for uh, the outdoors and protecting, you know, environmental, uh, environmental protection rather, and he's tried to campaign on that in this election that he is a champion for, if not climate issues specifically, then environmental and clean energy issues. Uh, So interesting that he ranks so low. Yeah, well, we are straight climate, like I said. And we have, you know, so when we rank someone on position, we want to know what they think and what they say on the issue, right? We want to know how they voted. We had in the U.S. Senate, we had eight votes that we used to calculate our vote score. You know, we're very specific. We have, um, for example, on position, we have a 100 means that they understand the importance of climate change as a top priority issue. 
that's a big, that's a big ask. And not many people fall into that category. For zero on position, they disagree with climate science consensus that climate change is real and human made from burning fossil fuels. And then we have, you know, 175, 50, 25, and zero for the position. So it's, it's not that difficult if you believe in climate change and you vote right and you show leadership and you support a fee on carbon, you're going to get a good score. But that doesn't hold for, for Cory Gardner, even if he seems generically to support environmental issues, he's not good on climate change. So what would be another race? Well, everyone's interested, of course, in Mitch McConnell, right? And and his opponent, Amy McGrath. Now, it's interesting because Mitch McConnell scores a 12.5. I would have actually thought that he might be one of our climate zeros, but he has said some things that that indicate that he does believe that climate change is real and human-made from burning fossil fuels. Now, uh, his opponent, Amy McGrath, scores about a 78. And again, what she needs to do, now that's, you know, there's no contest there. If you're voting climate, you're voting for Amy McGrath. But her score's not 100. Her score's not even 90. It's, you know, it's high 70s. And so you say, well, why doesn't she do better? Because, for example, she's not a co-sponsor of the Green New Deal. We believe that that is indicative of people who actually want meaningful action on climate change. And she's not there. Her focus is, is mostly local. And she, if she wants a better score on Vote Climate U.S. PAC's Voters Guide, she's going to have to get you know, more national and she's going to have to show more leadership on the issue for sure. Another really interesting race that we have is Susan Collins in Maine. And Susan Collins scores a 50. That's her overall climate calculation. And her opponent, Sarah Gideon, scores a 92.5. Now, the thing about Susan Collins is, you know, she has an average score of 75 on position, but she has very low scores on voting right on climate, on leadership, and on a fee on carbon, contrasted with her opponent, Sarah Gideon, who has a 92.5, which is an excellent score. There's no doubt about it. It's not 100, but um, I'd have to look specifically at her profile to see exactly uh, why she didn't get 100. But I'm guessing, like most people, it's either an issue of leadership or not not publicly supporting a fee on carbon. Um, other thing to note here is that it's harder to get information on challengers because they don't have a voting record, you know, and they often don't, they're just not that out there with their information. We are a super PAC. We are, so we have a prohibition against coordinating with campaigns. So any information that we find has to be made public. And oftentimes challengers find it harder to get their message out there. But that's one of the lessons that we learned from doing this voter's guide is that they have to be aggressive in getting their information out there because we can only get their information from public sources. So if you, you know, if you're Amy McGrath and you think you are a strong leader on climate change, make it public, make it known, and we'll find it. If it's out there, we'll find it. But you got to you got to assert yourself on the issue if you want a really good score. It's interesting, though, to hear how you rank the candidates and the metrics that you use, because something like a Green New Deal, there's not even consensus among Democrats that that is the right approach to combating climate change. For instance, some people prefer more market-based measures. I know you do uh, discuss you know, putting a price on carbon, uh, but it does get into the policy 
toolkit you want to you want to use going forward. Uh, so I think it's helpful to understand that uh, the, the metrics that you're using. Right. Let's remember too that the the Green New Deal is basically a framework, and it's a framework that they haven't put the the meat on yet. And so we're saying, yeah, moving forward, part of filling out that that plan should be a fee on carbon pollution. Absolutely right. But we also like their approach to just generally transforming the economy around green green energy, green infrastructure. And we do think it's very important. We, we think it's critically important to get a framework like that uh, into action. Can I talk about one more race? There's one more really interesting race. Um, Lindsey Graham in South Carolina. Uh, he scores a 37.5 overall climate calculation. Again, higher than I would have thought. So, so there is a bit of a shift going on in the Republican Party, at least with acknowledging the existence of climate change and that it is human-made by burning fossil fuels. But then his opponent, uh, Jamie Harrison, scores a 92.5. So again, there is no absolutely no comparison. If you're voting climate, you're voting for Jamie Harrison in South Carolina. My last question to you is just about the support for this kind of movement. We talked earlier in our show today about the infrastructure that exists largely on the Republican side or on the right or among conservatives, however you want to label it, uh, to elect candidates that align with their issues. Um, this expresses itself through, um, you know, things like ALEC, um, you know, the Koch brothers have, have supported candidates in this manner. Do you think that there is something similar happening now for climate issues? Is there kind of a, an infrastructure being built around this? Obviously, you are part of it. What would you say about how this is evolving in terms of the support for candidates who care about this topic? And, and is that a good thing? Uh, what, are your, what are your thoughts? There is no doubt at all, Julia, that climate change has become a top voting priority. And believe me, it's taken us a long time to get here. So I'm gratified to be able to say that. Uh, we need to elect climate heroes and other candidates who rank highly, especially when compared to their opponents. And that's what our Vote Climate US PAC Voters Guide is all about. It's up to voters to choose climate action in 2020 to make climate change a priority issue. Voters can use our Voters Guide to choose between good and bad candidates on climate change. It is the single most important issue. If we don't slow climate change, no other issue is going to matter. Well, we will have to leave it there. Karen, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, my great pleasure, Julia. Well, that is the end of our show this week, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. Remember, you can find Political Climate wherever you get podcasts on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn. Hit subscribe and follow along. That's it for this week. We will talk to you again soon.